Okay, uh, I've only got a little bit of science tonight, okay? Only a little bit. I know I've been overloading you on the science. But I've really wanted to whet your appetite so that if you're not educated on these things, you might, you might take the opportunity to educate yourself and in turn educate your friends and family, uh, particularly your children. So I just have a little bit of science, and I have a lot of beautiful theology, okay? So uh, hope, you'll, hope you can hang with me. I noticed I preached pretty long last week. It's always my intent not to over-preach your endurance, and uh, so I'll try to do better. I'll try to do better this week. Uh, 1857, some guys dug up a, a partial skeleton in Dusseldorf, Germany. Uh, similar skeletons were found in Africa and Asia as well. These skeletons were given the common name of Neanderthal. Uh, they were purported to be the missing link between uh, uh, ape and man. Oops, in 1908, they found a, a, a Neanderthal skeleton buried in a suit of armor in a tomb in Poland. I mean, you got a huge problem with the whole evolutionary scenario when you have found an ape man buried in a suit of armor. Okay? Uh, yeah, key problem. Uh, Neanderthals were nothing more than uh, mere human beings with unusual skeletal features accentuated by rickets, arthritis, and vitamin D deficiencies. Uh, while Neanderthal is still uh, in some textbooks and museums represented as a subhuman species, as one, one scholar said, Neanderthal was nothing more than a card-carrying member of the human race. Uh, 1892, Eugene Dubois found a skull fragment, three, uh, pardon me, a thigh, a thigh bone and three teeth laying at least 50 uh, feet apart from each other and announced he had found an upright ape man. This, uh, found, be, this found became uh, known as Java Man. Oops, 28 years later, Du Bois admitted that he had found uh, human skeletal remains in the same geological stratum, he failed to mention. And J Java Man wasn't a missing link at all. He was a run-of-the-mill human being. 1912, Charles Daw uh, Dawson uh, showed up at the British Museum with some bones, some teeth, and primitive implements he said he found at Piltdown, Sussex. Experts claim these remains were half a million years old. The bones were held as a missing link giving, given, and given the name Piltdown Man. Piltdown Man uh, hit all the textbooks and museums. Over 500 doctoral dissertations were written about the Piltdown Man. Oops. Forty years later, the whole thing was exposed as a gigantic hoax. 1922, Harold Cook found a single tooth in Nebraska. Experts said it was two to five million years old. It was pronounced as a missing link between ape and man. Guess what I'm going to say? Oops. Six years later, it was discovered that it was nothing more than the tooth of an extinct wild pig. Okay? 1927, famous Canadian Davidson uh, Black unearthed a single tooth and later a part of a skull, which he believed, quote, had characteristics of an ape-like transitionary form, unquote. He named his, found, his fine... P. King man. He too hit the textbooks in the museum. Oops. French paleontologist uh, Marce Marceline Boulet, director of Museum of Natural History in Paris, determined that the much ballyhooed P. King man was nothing more than a monkey. 1959. 
Lewis and Mary Leakey found a skull in East Africa. It was nicknamed by the news media as Nutcracker Man, touted as yet another missing link. Interestingly, this will be informative for you, Leakey believed Nutcracker Man was at least 600,000 years old. In 1961, the University of California dated him at 1.75 million years old. In 1968, he was dated again at 10,000 years old. So much for carbon dating, right? Oops. Later, Leakey had to withdraw this extravagant claim uh, of finding the missing link. It was, found in, uh, it was found that the skull belonged to an extinct monkey. Last one, just for your entertainment. 1974, Donald Johansson found a tiny skeleton in northern Africa. He claimed to be over three million years old. He claimed that it was the first ape to walk upright, and this uh, entity became nicknamed, it was nicknamed Lucy. I'm sure you've heard of Lucy. Actually, I saw an article on Lucy about a week ago. She's still hanging around. Yet another so-called missing link uh, between uh, primitive apes and mankind. Oops, Johansson finally admitted that the knee joint cited as proof that Lucy walked upright was found, get this, two miles away and 200 feet lower in the strata. Now, these are the things that people don't tell you. These are things that media doesn't tell you and academia doesn't tell you. Uh, Johansson actually got cornered on a stage uh, in a question and answer period. And he finally admitted that he found the knee joint two miles away. I love what theologian John Blanchard says about these kinds of statements from evolutionists uh, when they find the so-called missing link. He said this, These are good examples of the way in which articulate evolutionists have used pop popular media presentation to perfect the art of passing off guesswork as fact. This is how a stab in the dark acquires the status of dogma. I hope you're hearing this. I've been laying this groundwork for you for about six or seven weeks. And if you're not educated, you need to get caught up. Some of you have probably been indoctrinated. I studied some of this stuff, believe it or not, way back when I was in middle school. Some of us have been indoctrinated, friends. Some of us have been indoctrinated. I, I, I'm just appealing to you to go out and read, go out and study for yourself. The only thing that can be definitely said about macroevolutionary assertions regarding the missing link between ape and man is that they are emphatically still missing. There are none. They've never been found, nor will they ever be found. I'm sure that most of you know this. Uh, we're not just missing one link in the evolutionary chain. We're missing how many? Millions of them. There's never been... Um, uh, a universally agreed upon transitionary form found in the fossil record, uh, not between invertebrates and vertebrates, fish uh, and amphibians, amphibians to reptiles, or reptiles to birds. There are no transitionary forms in the fossil record. I know you've been taught differently, but that is the hard fact. Stephen Jay Gould, late Harvard professor and renowned Darwinist, called the lack of transitionary forms in the fossil record the trade secret of paleontology. Evolutionist Jeremy Rifkin is a little more blunt. Listen to this. This is great. What the record shows in nearly a century of fudging and finagling by scientists to conform 
to Darwinian notions all to no avail. Today, the millions of known fossils stand as a visible, ever-present reminder of the paltriness of the arguments and the overall shabbiness of the theory that marches under the banner of evolution. Now, that's an evolutionist scientist speaking there. I want you to understand that. And I'm just going to share one more time my most favorite quote from all my studies on this stuff. Uh, Louis Bournure, the director of research at the French National Center of Scientific Research in Paris, he said, you probably remember, evolutionary uh, theory is a fairy tale for grown-ups. So, let's move on from fairy tales to some nonfiction. Let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. We arrive at verse 26 in Genesis chapter 1. Everything's prepared. Everything's perfect. Paradise is ready. The 20 billion times 6 trillion stellar light show is in place. A beautiful, pleasing, comfortable, plentiful planet has been prepared. A vast array of fascinating creatures are present to enjoy. And God has reached the apex of His created purpose. He is ready to create man. He is ready to create the creature that He will make in His own image. All that God uh, has created prior to verse 26 has been with mankind in mind. I want to share with you one more scientist quote and then I'm done. And then it's just beautiful theology, okay? But I, I want to share this with you. I just want to share this quote with you. Uh, Michael Denton, he's a molecular geneticist. He basically is saying what I just said. Uh, listen, listen to his words. No other concept ever imagined by man can equal in boldness or audacity the, the great claim that all the starry heavens, every species of life, every characteristic of reality exists for mankind. God has everything up to verse 26, God has put in place for mankind. That his habitat would be perfect and pleasing. That he would lack for nothing and want for nothing. Denton continues, remarkably, no valid observation has ever laid this presumption to rest. And today, four centuries after the scientific revolution, the doctrine is again reemerging. In the last decades of the 20th century, its credibility is being enhanced by discoveries in several branches of fundamental science. As Bible believers, we understand that the cosmos is merely a theater in which God will work his redemptive story. It's merely the stage whereby God will work His redemptive story and the great Creator, Redeemer, God, will redeem a people for Himself. While God is the compelling main character of the saga, man is the focus of this redemptive plan of God. And God will put His limitless grace and mercy and love and compassion on display and he will redeem for himself a people out of fallen, rebellious, haughty, arrogant man. Let me just read verse 26 and 27 again for you. Chapter 1 of Genesis. Then God said, Let us make man in our, in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he 
created them. My first observation is going to uh, repeat to you what I've been repeating to you all the way through Genesis chapter 1. If you read the text closely, uh, there is no way to read long ages of macroevolutionary process into the text. We don't see random mutation. We don't see natural selection. Uh, there's no room for even a, hypoth- uh, a hypothetical Neanderthal or Peking man anywhere in the text. In fact, to try to do that will do violence to the plain meaning of the words. We've acknowledged that some uh, who call themselves Christians import macroevolutionary theory into Genesis 1. I have acknowledged that with you in this series. They are called theistic evolutionists. My reply to them is that uh, theistic evolutionists are not only unsound in their interpretation and understanding of the Bible, they are uh, uh, utterly uncritical in their science. In other words, they are bad theologians and they are bad scientists. Theistic evolution is a fairy tale. You cannot get it out of the Bible. You have to import it into the Bible. There are no textual, linguistic, interpretive grounds for trying to read along ages of evolutionary progress into Genesis chapter 1. That's simply importing the ideas of man into God's Word. And I hope I've made my point. That is always an error. Scripture is to be interpreted uh, as it sits on the page. We are not to bring our presuppositions. We're not to import our doctrine or dogma into the Word of God. We let God speak to us. We don't seek to uh, impose our ideas upon Him. I hope I've made that, that point to you as we've gone through this series There's no sound reason to put uh, evolutionary process and progress into Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to say it one more time, and then you won't have to hear it anymore. But I bet some of you could actually repeat this back to me, I hope. This will be my seventh time to say say this. We must not import macro-Darwinian evolutionary theory into Genesis 1 to maintain our intellectual integrity. In fact, the exact opposite is true. If we're going to maintain our intellectual integrity, we must not import macro-Darwinian theory into Genesis chapter 1. If we're going to be thinking people, and if we're going to demand scientists to actually put forth proof of their uh, assertions, we won't import it. And I'm challenging you, Christian, and I'm sure I have unbelievers in here too, but I'm challenging you, Christian, do not accommodate the thoughts and unproven uh, theories of men when you come to the Word of God. Don't do it. It's always a mistake. Don't do that. In this series, I've called you to simply believe what your Father has said. It really comes down to the integrity of the Word of God and your integrity as a person who claims to be a Christian. And what I've said to you is there's no middle ground here. There's really no middle ground. You have to decide, are you going to believe God's Word or are you going to believe men's words? You need to decide. Because there's no way, there's no workable middle ground. This thing called theistic evolution, it's both a scriptural and a scientific train wreck. It does not work either way. So I say, be a a biblical creationist or be an evolutionist, but you can't in good conscience, if you have intellectual integrity, be both. So let's have some integrity. Let's have some integrity with God's Word.
Verse 26, obviously the first thing you notice when you read verse 26, God is using uh, plural personal pronouns. And as He talks about creating man, He says, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. For all of us who are Bible believers, we understand that this is the first uh, clear reference to the Godhead, to the triune God, normally uh, known as the Trinity. If you know your Hebrew, you know that uh, the Godhead has already been hinted at. The word that's used throughout Genesis 1, the Hebrew word used for God throughout Genesis 1 is Elohim. It is a plural form. So the Godhead has already been hinted at in Genesis 1, but when we get here, it's clear. Let us make man in our own image. Obviously, this, is, this revelation is much clearer in the New Testament. I'm just going to take you to one, one verse, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Many of you know this verse. It's a, it's a, a verse about Jesus Christ as the Creator. Listen to the, the words of the writer of the Gospel of John. In the beginning, he's talking about He's not talking about Genesis 1. He's talking about eternity past. Okay? This is the beginning that had no beginning. All right? That's what is meant in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us a clear picture of the second member of the Trinity and His involvement in creation. Whenever I teach on the triune nature of the biblical God, I always encourage Christians, never, never, never try to explain the Trinity to an unbeliever. You can't do it. It's impossible. There are no good human analogies. There are no natural analogies. Listen, God is infinitely mysterious and you can't explain Him. One of my favorite quote, quotes in, uh, uh, of all time is a guy, and I, uh, I can't say his name, he's Dutch. It's just too hard, I'm not even going to try. But he says, a comprehended God is no God at all. And I want to say to you, Christian friends, don't try to explain the Trinity, you can't do it. God means to be mysterious. And He means to be worshipped because He's mysterious. We're not supposed to be able to explain. Hey, to be a Bible-believing Christian doesn't mean you can explain everything. Because you can't explain everything. He's too huge. He's transcendent. He's the eternal, infinite, I am God. You cannot explain Him. So what I'm saying to you is, don't try. Do the best you can with Scripture. But friends, let the mystery be there. I love the mystery. Man, I love the mystery. And I'm challenging you to embrace the mystery. Love the mystery. Worship the mystery. Live the mystery. Don't try to explain God. Don't try to explain the analogy. You cannot comprehend Him with your two and a half pounds of gray matter, but you can worship Him. And that's what part of the Trinity is all about. So as we look at verse 26, this intra-Trinitarian communication, we know that God's redemption of the bride of Christ has already been, plan already been planned. And I didn't initially mean to go here with this text, but it was like God was pushing me there. You need to understand, believing Christian, Bible believer, you need to understand that before Genesis 1.1, before Genesis 1.26, God had already planned the redemption of His people. Do you know this? You need to know this, Christian. Uh, redemption is not an afterthought of creation. It is the impetus of creation. 
That's probably a new thought. That's probably a new thought for some of you. Let there be no confusion among those who claim to be Bible believers. The cosmos was created for one primary principal reason. That was for the glory of God. And John Piper says it perfectly. So let me share that with you. Let me just read to you for a minute. John Piper. The, the entire universe exists to display the greatness of the glory of the grace of God. It might be said more simply that the entire universe exists to display the greatness of the glory of God. And that would be true. But the Bible is more specific. The glory of God shines most brightly, most fully, most beautifully in the manifestation of the glory of His grace. Therefore, this is the ultimate aim and final explanation of all things. Brothers and sisters, that is biblically correct. So when we come to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God has already planned your redemption. What have I been saying through this series? Awesome Creator. Awesome Redeemer. It's already planned. Don't ever think it was an afterthought. If you ever hear anybody teach it's an afterthought, they don't know how to rightly divide the Word of God. It is not an afterthought. God is about to create mankind. Genesis chapter 1 is all about the greatness of the glory of the grace of God. The whole Bible is about the greatness of the glory of the grace of God. Romans 9, 22 to 23 highlights this truth when God says that He has endured with much patience the wickedness and evil of the vessels of wrath. Why has He done that? Why has God endured? Why has God been long-suffering? Why, do, why does God let men blaspheme Him and curse Him and be haughty and arrogant upon the earth? Listen to what uh, Romans chapter 9 says. He's been patient in order that He might make known the riches of His glory upon the vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory. Before what? Before creation. Friends, this is awesome theology. This is beautiful theology. This is theology that many Christians never even get to because they don't deeply study their Bible. They, they get to a hard passage and they just, oh, I can't handle that, I can't understand it, and they just move on. Friends, I always want to challenge you to wrestle with a text. There's still texts in the Bible that I, I'm still wrestle, wrestling with. How do you say it in Canada? Wrestle. wrestle. In Arkansas, you say, wrestle. Okay? <laughs> All I'm saying is, don't give up. You've got to fight to know and understand the Word of God. Vessels of mercy will never grow weary of praising this awesome God for His creative power and for His redemptive grace. We will never grow weary. A billion eternities we will not be able to exhaust the praise in our heart. Because we know we deserve hell, but we're not going to get that. We don't get God's worst. We get God's best. I hate when I do that. Okay, no harm done. Okay. All right. Before Genesis 1.1, before uh, Genesis 1.26, God had already planned redemptive history. Just a couple of verses. Titus 1.2 about believers' hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, listen, promised before the world began. Paul told Timothy the same thing, 2 Timothy 1.9, God who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, 
which was, here it is, granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Again, Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Is everybody getting this? When we come to Genesis chapter 1, 26, redemption is planned. Jesus is going to the cross and Jesus is going to save His people. It's a done deal in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. He has predestined us, Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, He's predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace. And you guys know that the book of Revelation, John refers to believers. What does John say about believers in Revelation? He says that our names have been written where? Where have our names been written? And when were they written there? Someone tell me. In the book of life. And when were they written in the book of life? Before what? The foundation of the world. You say, Jim, you're way off Genesis 1. No! I'm right on it. I did not expect to go there. But when I studied, as I studied this week, God just kept showing it to me. You need to tell my people how big their redemption is. You need to tell my people how long I've been loving them. You need to tell my people that before it all began, I loved them. And I had planned for their redemption. They are the bride of Christ. They're the bride for my son. It's an awesome thing. It's an awesome thing. Paul said in Romans 8.29, we have been foreknown. It's an awesome thing. As one theologian said, we have been foreloved. I love this. How can you not love being a Christian? This is the redemptive plan that is the backdrop of Genesis 1.26. When a Bible-believing Christian comes to Genesis 1, we not only worship uh, the creative power and genius of God, we worship the redemptive purpose of God that has been revealed to us throughout all of Scripture. It's an awesome, unspeakable thing. Our redemption is much bigger and more beautiful and more mysterious and more awesome than I bet many of you have ever begun to conceive or think about. And I challenge you almost every time you come in here, don't you dare take it for granted. Don't you dare take your redemption for granted. Don't you dare take it for granted Monday through Saturday. Don't let it just be a Sunday thing for you. If you call yourself a Christian, don't you dare take it for granted. This is unspeakably beautiful theology. Awesome Creator. Awesome Redeemer. Authentic Christianity is not just another dusty little world religion. It's the Creator God and Redeemer God loving and saving His people. It's awesome stuff. This is the backdrop. This is the backdrop of creation. And what I want to say to you, what I want, how I want to challenge you, Christian friend, is if you really believe what the Bible says about your salvation, it can't be some small little religious spiritual part of your life. It should be your life. Jesus Christ, listen, Jesus Christ is supposed to be your life. He's not supposed to be part of your life. He's not supposed to be in this nice little boxed in area where you keep Him uh, during the week. He's not supposed to be part of your life. He's supposed to be your life. I know this is a radical call. This is the call of the gospel. He's supposed to be our life. 
I pray that we don't take Him and His redemption for granted. So I'm calling you today to meditate deeply in what the Bible is saying about your creation and about your redemption. And I want to say to you, I'm going to call you to radical, extravagant, sold out uh, faith. And what I want to say to you is, this is the only reasonable response. Sold out, radical, extravagant life of faith is the only reasonable response to this awesome Creator, awesome Redeemer God. That's the only reasonable response. Now, if you want to play religion, that's on your own time. But what I'm saying to you is, that's holy and apart and separate from being a follower of Jesus. Awesome creation, awesome redemption equals a radical life of faith. So let's get back to verse 26. A major language shift happens here. And God's been previously saying, well, let this be and let that be. But uh, He begins to talk, as He talks about creating man, He begins to talk in relational and personal terms. Look over with me, if you would, real quick to chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man uh, of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. There's a hands-on intimacy here with man that is nowhere else seen in the creation account. Job 10.8 highlights this. Job says, Thy hands fashioned me. You can almost get the sense of, of God uh, bending over the dust and forming mankind. There's a hands-on intimacy here we don't see in the rest of the created account. Darwinists, macro-Darwinists, love to assert that mankind is just an extremely fortuitous, highly evolved chemical animal. We're merely uh, 65% oxygen, 18% carbon, 10% hydrogen, 3% nitrogen, and a handful of other chemicals. That's all man is, according to your uh, macro Darwinist. But what I want to say to you, the Bible tells us that a human being is infinitely more than that. And a human being is infinitely above the rest of the created order, the rest of the creatures. We are much more than the chemical sums of our parts. I love the Hebrew here. We're made in the image of God. It conveys, it's vivid, it conveys being carved into the shape of God. So what does it mean to be created in the image of God? Well, certainly it's not physiological. Uh, God reveals, pardon me, the Bible reveals that God is spirit. But let me give you a quote here from theologian Henry Morris. I think it's really great. Although God has no physical body, He designed man's body to enable it to function physically in ways which God Himself can function without a body. Scripture tells us that God can see, He can hear, He can smell, He can touch, and He can speak. Furthermore, God created man with an erect posture, an upward-gazing countenance, a naturally expressive face and eyes, which would be suitable for the incarnation of God Himself. Listen to this last sentence. I love this last sentence. Listen to this. For God would be made in the image... Pardon me. For God would be made in the likeness of men, just as man has been made in the likeness of God. So God gives man a dignity a dignity that no other creature has because the Son of God is going to become a man. It's a, it's a form and a dignity that is accorded no other creature in the created realm. Of course, we have biological features like, like other physical creatures, but we possess spiritual attributes. 
that transcend our genetic code. We are preeminently spiritual. We are preeminently soulish. And you know, in your quiet moments, I don't care what you believe, even an atheist in his quiet moments, he has to know he's more than hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen. He's got to know it. I think every human being intuitively knows we're more than the sum of our chemical parts. So what does it mean? How does this God image seen in, in even our fallen state? Well, we are self-conscious. We are morally conscious. We are ethically conscious. We have the capacity for goodness and love and mercy and righteousness. We have an affinity for beauty and diversity. We are emotional beings. We are rational beings. We are intellectual beings. We have a great capacity for creativity. We are linguistic. We are relational. All of these things are like God. There's a lot of ways to talk about this, but I think MacArthur says it very well. John MacArthur says it this way. Above all, the image of God uh, can be summed up by the word personhood. We are persons with unique dignity upon the earth. As evidenced by the Trinity, God is spiritual, He is personal, He is relational. And He has made us in that image that we might be in personal relationship with Him. It is the creative purpose of God. It's the redemptive purpose of God to be in relationship with His people. Let me ask you this. How, uh, who knows how Jesus defines eternal life? Do you know how Jesus defines eternal life? Raise your hand. Do you know how Jesus uh, defines eternal life? Okay, we have a couple who actually know how Jesus defines it. Um, it's not about religion, by the way. You know, false religion will tell you that your salvation lies in a dozen different things. <laughs> uh, pray this prayer. Believe this dogma. Do this ordinance. Confess this doctrine. Keep these rules. Partake of this sacrament. Perform these religious rites. Do these good works. But that's not how Jesus defines salvation and eternal life. When Jesus defines it in John chapter 17, verse 3, there are echoes of Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27. Jesus defines it in a relational way. Jesus says, this is eternal life that you may what? Someone tell me. That you may know thee, that they may know thee and know Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. It's relational. Genuine Christianity has always been relational. I'm not talking about all the false expressions of Christianity in the world that masquerade as Christians. I'm that as Christian, I'm talking about the genuine expression of Christianity and that is to be in relationship with Jesus Christ to know Him and be known by Him. John chapter 10, I know my sheep. My sheep know me. My sheep do what? Someone tell me. They follow me. Let me ask you, are you following Jesus Christ? You don't need a theologian to tell you if you're a Christian or not. Do you know Him? Do you love Him? Are you following Him? John chapter 10. John chapter 10. That's how Jesus defines eternal life. Piper is right. The entire universe exists to display the greatness of the glory of the grace of God. It's what Genesis 1 is all about. It's what the whole Bible is about. It's what the uh, 20 billion times 6 trillion cosmos is all about. 
all of reality is a backdrop to the redemption that will come through Jesus Christ for His people. You say, Jim, you got all that out of Genesis 1? Yes, I did. You guys pay me to just study the Word, man. And I, I, I got the best job in the world. I got the best job in the world. And guess what, friends? Your whole life is supposed to be about that too. Your whole life is supposed to magnify Christ. Your whole life, your marriage is supposed to magnify Christ. The way you relate to your kids is supposed to magnify Christ. The, the, the way you serve your church is supposed to magnify Christ. What you do with your money is supposed to magnify Christ. You know, the 20 billion times 6 trillion is all about Jesus. That's right. And your life is, all, is supposed to be all about Jesus. So let me ask you, Christian friend, how is that going in your life? Have you become preoccupied with the things of the world? Or are you indeed a true lover and follower of Christ? That's genuine Christianity. Jesus says, my sheep know me. I know them. And they follow me. And I want to say to you, I'm done. I think I've preached a little too long again. But uh, my apologies. I just have a couple more things to say. Satan knows what's at stake in Genesis chapter 1. He knows that it's not only creation. It's redemption. He knows. And that's why he attacks it. Unrelentlessly he attacks it. He knows what's at stake. He knows. He knows that Genesis 1 is foundational in our understanding of redemption. And macro-Darwinism is far worse than just being really, really, really pathetic science. It's a lie from the pit of hell. And I know that some of you will think, Jim, you're being a little hard here. Jim, it's certainly more benign than that. And I will assert to you it is not benign. I can't tell you how many scientists I've read through this series and seen on video who've actually said, yes, as I began to grapple and understand the, the theory of evolution, it led me down the road of atheism. I've heard it over and over and over and over again. Satan knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. This uh, macro-Darwinism, it discredits Scripture, it degrades humanity, and it dispenses with God. So Christian, I want to challenge you to believe what your Father has said to you. That's my challenge to you. To believe what God has said to you in Genesis chapter 1. This is literally how He did it. This is how He did it. And I'm challenging you to, uh, to believe that. I'm challenging you to understand that you are fearfully and wonderfully made and I'm challenging you to understand that you are fearfully and wonderfully redeemed. This is what the Word of God says. So I challenge you, Christian, to read it, to study it, to know it, to believe it, to hold to it, to defend it, to proclaim it, and to live it. That's my exhortation to you as we close Genesis chapter 1. It's the call of the Creator-Redeemer God to His created, redeemed people. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Thy name in all the earth. Let's pray together. Father, forgive us if we've been negligent with this part of Your Word. Forgive us that we, if we've been intimidated or indoctrinated. Forgive us that we've not been diligent students knowing and understanding as uh, 
Stephen C. Meyer says that science done right points to you. You are the, how could it not, you are the almighty, glorious, awesome creator God. Lord, may, may we learn to, to defend your text. May we learn to defend the Genesis account. Father, we don't want to be sheep. Life's too short to be a sheep. Lord, may we educate ourselves. May we stand on the Word. May we proclaim it. Because, Father, we know when we do, You will convert sinners. We know this. We know that when Your people stand on Your Word and proclaim it and have faith in it and trust in it, You do miracles. You do miracles uh, in lives around us and You do miracles in our own life. So, Lord, help us to be mighty in the Scriptures. You've not called us to be timid. You've called us to be bold. Lord, may we be good soldiers. May we fight the good fight. May we finish the course. May we keep the faith. We pray all this in the beautiful name of our matchless Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.